following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 21. The passage is also printed for you in your order of worship. And as we've mentioned already this morning, today is Palm Sunday. And it marks the beginning of Holy Week, which is an important week in the life of the worldwide church. At the end of this week, we celebrate the events of Redemption Weekend, the arrest, trial, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is also the week that we remember and celebrate Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper. And in the liturgical year, in the church calendar, Holy Week has the lowest of lows and it's got the highest of highs. Good Friday is our most somber day of the year, and it's followed two days later by Easter Sunday, our biggest feast, our biggest celebration of the year. And as we begin this week together, we're going to spend some time this morning looking at an account that's documented by all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's what's come to be known as the triumphal entry where a week before his death, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem for the last time. Up to this point, you might know that Jesus has tried hard to keep his identity quiet. In many ways, he needed to maintain some discretion because he had lots of work to accomplish during his time on earth. But with the triumphal entry, in many ways for the first time, we see that Jesus doesn't stop the crowd from publicly recognizing his Messiahship. He doesn't try to hush the praise that he receives. Instead, he welcomes it. As Jesus enters the last week of his life, what we see is he begins to receive public praise and adoration for the first time that he always deserved. And by the end of the week, we'll see where it leads. But for this morning, let's start at the beginning of the end with Jesus entering Jerusalem, the city of peace, for the final time. You follow along as I read, beginning in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloak, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you're familiar with the literary device known as an oxymoron. It's one of the more fun literary devices out there. It's a figure of speech where two opposite ideas are joined together 
for effect, where you take two traits, two words that don't seem to go together, and put them together in a phrase. A classic oxymoron would be jumbo shrimp. Uh, You've also likely heard phrases, the biggest loser, or clearly confused, or act naturally, or cruel kindness, or deafening silence. These are all oxymorons. Oxymorons, they really stick out because you're putting what seems to be two mutually exclusive words, two words that have no business being stuck together, together. And this morning, I want you to think about this. As you read the accounts of Christ in the Gospels, you can make the case that his life in many ways is oxymoronic, if I can put it that way. As you look at the life of Jesus, you see traits put together that don't go together. Some oxymorons you could use to describe the life of Jesus are human God, or lowly Lord, or modest King. And as he enters this final week of his life, we see the biggest oxymoron of them all, crucified Savior. In our passage this morning, we encounter an extended oxymoron in a sense where we see two seemingly opposite traits come together in the life of Jesus. As we read about the triumphal entry, we see majestic meekness from Jesus as he enters Jerusalem for the last time. Majestic meekness, two sides of an oxymoron, majestic and meekness. That's what I want us to reflect on this morning as we look at the triumphal entry. So let's spend a few minutes considering each trait that we see from Jesus, his majesty and his meekness. Let's begin by considering his majesty. One of the best ways to see Jesus' seemingly opposite character traits in this passage is to look at the two Old Testament references that are used by Matthew in this passage. In a minute, we're going to look at the meekness of Jesus and the fact that he enters the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. But for now, let's take a look at the majesty of Jesus and the fact that people are lining the streets with praise and worship as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. We see the shouts of praise in verse 9 where Matthew records, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now it's helpful to know that the phrase Hosanna in the highest is a direct reference to Psalm 118, which we used for our call to worship this morning. And the crowds are using Psalm 118 to praise Jesus. Hosanna literally means, save us, we pray. And we see in our passage Jesus riding in on the praises of these people. And on top of their praises, what we see them doing is taking off their cloaks and cutting down palm branches and laying them in front of Jesus. And this, in many ways, was a royal reception. It's equivalent to our idea of a ticker tape parade or rolling out the red carpet for someone important. These crowds, what we see they were doing is they were worshiping Jesus. They knew enough about him and his work that it stoked excitement and adoration in their hearts. And they were shouting, save us, we pray. These crowds were taking the majesty, taking something that applied to Yahweh himself, the majesty of Yahweh, and they were taking it and applying it to Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. These crowds are finally, in a sense, recognizing the majesty of Jesus. As Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, he's finally being publicly recognized as the Christ, as the long-awaited Messiah, 
the anointed one, the savior and rescuer of the world. And this recognition is important because it would be tragic if these people didn't recognize the greatness that was in their midst, didn't worship the majesty of this man from Nazareth. Some of you likely heard the story from a few years back about Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is one of the best concert violinists in the world. And one day he set up during the morning rush hour in the DC Metro subway station. He set up just him, his violin, and his violin case set out to collect money. And there in the subway station, at one of the busiest times of day, he played for free. In fact, he spent 45 minutes playing beautiful music on a violin that's worth three and a half million dollars. And during the course of playing one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written there in the subway, more than a thousand people passed by Bell. Only six stopped to listen to him play, including a three-year-old boy. And only one person recognized who he was. About 20 people gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace as they passed him by. That day, he collected $32. And when he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed it, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. And this is the same world-class violinist who played just two days before to a packed house at Boston Symphony Hall where seats were selling for far more than $100 apiece. And thankfully, that kind of mistake doesn't happen in our passage. We see that Jesus enters Jerusalem, and as he does so, the whole city is stirred up saying, who is this? The crowds didn't allow Jesus to enter Jerusalem unnoticed. They didn't let him enter in silence. They recognized his majesty, rolling out the red carpet for him in the best way they knew how, shouting out for him to save them. They recognized Jesus as the king who could save. And it's why they shouted out Hosanna, which literally means save us, please. And the crowd had it right. Their confession is instructive for us. It actually forces us to ask, who or what are we asking to save us? Who or what do we look to and shout, Hosanna, save us, please? The list of kings in our lives is long. We look to things like money, control, children's behavior, things like beauty and politics, things like career and health and exercise, things like morality, We look to these kings, we look to these things in our lives, and we shout, Hosanna! We ask them to save us, to make us feel worthy, to rescue us from our sense of inadequacy, to tell us that we measure up, to show us that we're loved. And the problem is that these kings can't meet those desires that we place on them. The kings that we often worship, they can't save us. In fact, more often than not, they lead us into further bondage and slavery. And this passage from Matthew 21 is inviting us to direct our calls for salvation to the one king who can save. Don't miss his majesty. Don't allow his normal appearance to fool you here in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is the king that we need. He's the son of David that God's people have been waiting for. He is the one who can save. And we can join our voices with the voices of those who line the road as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, shouting to him, Hosanna, save us, please. We see the majesty of Jesus on display here in Matthew 21, but we also see the meekness 
of Jesus come through in this passage. The way this story plays out is so interesting. There's so much happening, and you get the sense that Jesus is orchestrating it all. As Jesus plans to come into Jerusalem, he does it very intentionally. In fact, everything Jesus does, especially during the last week of his life, is intentional. And that's important to remember, especially as we move into this week, that Jesus enters Jerusalem to lay down his life on his own accord. He is not surprised by what's about to happen to him. He's not in shock. This is not a defeat for Jesus. No one takes his life from him. He does it willingly. He enters into Jerusalem freely. And as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples ahead with a strange request. In verse 2, we see Jesus say to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Well, this is strange, but Jesus very intentionally asks for a donkey. In fact, he demands it. Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, the second Old Testament reference that Matthew uses in our passage helps us understand this request and highlights the meekness of Jesus. Matthew quotes the prophet Zechariah in verse 5. And in the book of Zechariah, we see that the coming king, the coming Messiah that God's people are waiting for is going to come riding on a donkey. This is how the prophet Zechariah puts it in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah here prophesies that the king of Israel is coming to bring salvation riding on a donkey. Jesus is coming as king, but he doesn't come like a normal king, in other words. The way a king normally entered a city is with power, on a war horse, with his captives in tow behind him. That's how a king normally entered a city, with power and prestige and honor. But Jesus comes in a way that's not flashy, it's not slick or powerful, it's kind of homespun, it's humble. Jesus was king, but he didn't fit the world's categories for kingship. Look at how Jesus enters on a humble animal, a donkey. A donkey was not looked up to in that day and age. It was not stylish or powerful. I love how Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it when he said this, and it's printed for you at the beginning of your worship liturgy. Martin Luther said, look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them on himself. Look, the way Jesus enters the city lets people know that he comes in humility, he comes in meekness. But the crowds didn't yet understand this meekness. They still had high expectations for Jesus. The crowds had an agenda for the Christ. 
for their king. They wanted and expected their king to establish a new kingdom by kicking out the oppressors, by kicking out the Romans and reestablishing a Jewish dynasty. They wanted Jesus to save them politically. They wanted him to enter Jerusalem and in a sense clean house, to exert power, to wield a sword. But somehow they missed that their king would be humble. And Jesus, by the way he enters Jerusalem, reminds them who he is. He doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come as a political savior. He comes to be executed. He comes to lay down his life. He comes not to save Israel, but to save the world. He comes not to make war, but to bring peace. Jesus was coming to defeat sin and death and Satan, all of our spiritual enemies. And by riding on a donkey, Jesus shows us the kind of Messiah he is. He is no man of war, but a man of peace coming to us in humility and service. And the crowd's expectations in many ways were completely off base. But we can't be too hard on the crowd, can't be too hard on their expectations for Jesus because we often have expectations for Jesus that are off base as well. We often have an agenda for Jesus. We want Him to fix things like we want them fixed. We've got an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our health. We expect a life free of sickness and disease. We have an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our vocations that will continue to advance and never experience job difficulties. And boy, has that come to a screeching halt in the past few weeks. We have an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our families that our kids will always be close and never struggle with following Him. We have an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our financial success that He'll provide in such a way that we'll be able to accumulate and accumulate and retire comfortably at an early age. We have a long list of expectations for Jesus, if we're honest. Normally unarticulated, but strongly held expectations. But Jesus comes to us, and He has His own agenda. He comes to deal mainly with your heart. He's concerned mostly with the kind of person you're becoming. He is concerned primarily with crafting and perfecting His image in you. That's the agenda that Jesus has, and he'll do whatever it takes to accomplish that agenda. Sometimes even using sickness or job loss or disappointment to accomplish his agenda in our lives. We may not recognize it. We may not even want to admit it. But Jesus' agenda is better than our agenda. Christ's plan is better than our plan. Jesus came not as people expected. He came as a humble king, not meeting our expectations. He comes with meekness to bring us what we ultimately need most, salvation and rescue from sin and death. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to get our minds back on the idea of oxymorons. We see one in an extended way as we see Jesus in his majesty and in his meekness from Matthew chapter 21. He's powerful and majestic enough to accomplish rescue, and he is meek and humble enough to desire that rescue. And we'll see oxymorons all around Christ's life during this final week. In the coming days, we see oxymorons like gracious justice, where Jesus receives the just punishment of our sins so that we can receive God's gracious smile. We'll see oxymorons like sovereign submission, where the king of the world comes and submits himself to local authorities and to their verdicts 
where they send him to death on a cross. We'll see by the end of the week, likely the biggest oxymoron of them all when we see God on a cross. The one who created all things, the one who gives life to everything in existence, coming to give his life for his creatures. I love how one pastor friend of mine puts it when he says, no other king could vanquish war horses and warriors riding the foal of a donkey. No other king could break the battle bow and backbone of warfare by the brokenness of crucifixion. No other king could replace the dominion of darkness and the tyranny of evil with an eternal reign of grace and peace. No other king would give his life and death for the redemption of rebels and idolaters like us. No other king can transform slaves of sin and death into prisoners of hope. Look, that is our majestically meek king, the one who came to seek us out and to save us and bring us life. And that's the king that you and I get the opportunity to worship this week. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you came in great majesty and great meekness in order to rescue and to redeem us. We pray that as we think about your majesty and your meekness this week, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would draw our attention to your great love, that we would rest secure in your salvation. As it seems like all the world is going 100 miles per hour around us, we pray that you would keep us centered on Jesus, on his life, on his death, on his resurrection, on the fact that he came to defeat our biggest enemies, sin, the the devil, and death itself. And we pray that this would give us great hope in the coming days and weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.